These days, when we hear about the emperors of ancient Rome, it's usually the stories of their crazy behavior or incredible cruelty. Tiberius had tons of orgies. Caligula made his horse a senator. Nero fiddled while the city burned. And the problem is most of these stories, maybe all of these stories, just aren't true. And so when writing her book about the emperors, the historian Mary Beard had to decide whether to include the stories at all. But Beard says serious history is about more than just the bare facts. And she realized this when she was writing about one of the emperors, Elagabalus. Here's an emperor at the beginning of the third century CE. Came to the throne age about 14 and was assassinated when he was 18. And the stories about him, like, well, they make Nero look like a kind of sweetie pussycat, honestly. He does things like showering his guests with rose petals, but so many rose petals that they smother and die. He has a shoe fetish. So it said that he never wore the same pair of shoes twice. Now, one of the best is the invention, or I think it's the invention, of the whoopee cushion that he invites people to dinner and he sits them on inflatable cushions and gradually during the evening he has slaves go round and let the air out of the cushions. So the poor guys you know, end up on the floor. Most of these stories, a few of them might be half true, a few of them might be exaggerations, but most of these, they're told after the assassination of Elagabalus to blacken his name. So I went through a sort of austere period of a week or so and I thought, I can't have any of these anecdotes in the book. But then I realised, look, it's not just that they're fun anecdotes and Some of them are very vicious and nasty, but many of them are quite fun. The idea of Elagabalus having colour-coded meals and so everything was red or everything was blue or serving the lower-ranked guests with fake food, not real food. I mean, if you just say, I'm not going to take those on board in my book, what you've done is you have just ruled out important ways in which Romans talked about their emperors. Because what they did is they told anecdotes like this time and time again, a bit like, you know, we in the UK tell anecdotes about the Queen's corgis eating out of silver bowls or, you know, King Charles now having his boiled eggs done in such a way that the kitchen is made to have seven boiled eggs done every morning so that he always has one that's done just right. Now, actually, those are probably untrue. Buckingham Palace deny all that. But they tell us about how we imagine imperial power or royal power. And they tell us quite a lot about what's going on in Romans' heads when they think of an emperor. So I've got a kind of bifocal vision here in some ways. I'm interested in the job description, in what they did, in what they really ate, in when they got up in the morning. But I'm also interested in how people thought about them, imagined them, the kind of tall stories they told and why they told those stories. And I think Elagabalus is a great character for that. And I think you get close to Romans, not just their celebrity gossip, but you get close to their fears about imperial power 
about what's dangerous about emperors, which are just as important things as, you know, the fact that he might send a hit squad round to you. That's what I was trying to do. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. So Mary Beard's book called Emperor of Rome is about the fact and the fiction of the rulers of the ancient Roman world. And there's always fantasy and gossip and slander in this history. It's part of what she describes as this toolkit the Romans used to construct an image of their emperors. And Beard writes about what a regular day for an imperial Roman emperor was like, like what kind of paperwork they had to fill out, what and where they ate. There's even a job description in here. But we begin the conversation by getting the terminology straight. We talk about the empire when we mean the territorial extent of Roman rule. And we talk about the empire, meaning the period of Roman rule when there was one man ruling in the centre, mm. you know, an emperor. You know? And the, what's really confusing is, is that the empire, in the sense of the territory, was established hundreds of years before there was a one-man ruler in the person of the emperor. And actually, although emperors get themselves represented in battle dress all the time, and although there's still a huge ideology that you know, a good Roman is a conquering Roman, mm-hmm. actually, they're not really conquering anything. The, the biggest thing they conquer between, well, let's say, the Emperor Augustus, who's really the first proper emperor who rules from 31 BC. The biggest thing they conquer is, between then and 235, is Britain. Um, And that was a very, very serious mistake. Claudius, Claudius, in the middle of the first century CE, thought, I want to be a conquering emperor and Britain looks like a good opportunity for me. And in some ways it was, but it kept the Romans busy with guerrilla warfare ever after. Hmm. And by and large, apart from Britain, they don't add much territory to the Roman Empire in the territorial sense. And... If they do add it, they don't keep it for very long. There is something, you know, I think bizarre and paradoxical that the emperors don't add to the empire Hmm. and they didn't create the empire. They sort of um, were created by it almost. Why did we, why did they need an emperor? It seems like the system before was a democracy or anyway called a democracy. (laughs) And you say it really was more this sort of power-sharing arrangement. And in practical terms, that didn't work so well. At least it was really inefficient. Is that why people settled on, okay, we'll we'll go with this emperor thing? Yeah. I think the Romans would have been shocked to think that we do, and I I am among the people who do, who call their republic a democracy, or at least I call it a sort of democracy, because they would never have called it a democracy, but it is Essentially, it's about sharing power and never holding power for long. It's only the upper echelons of the elite who ever get any power, but Mm. they don't get it for more than a year. And uh, they are voted into office by the people as a whole. So Mm. the people have voting power, but they don't have, they don't become the officials of state. 
There's now, term limits, right? And yeah, and nobody, nobody holds power alone in yeah. the Republic. There's always at least two parallel offices of equality, and they don't hold it for more than a year. So it's temporary and power sharing. Now, that was a great system of rule in some ways for a small city like Rome was in the 4th or 3rd centuries BC. You know, a, a little cattle town by the Tiber, um, not very many people. And, you know, it was already beginning to expand a bit, but not much. Now, by the time you get to the 1st century BC, and there have been wars of conquest after wars of conquest, Rome is, you know, at that point, controlling the Mediterranean from Spain to almost Syria, actually. And that power-sharing democracy finds it very hard to manage an empire of that size for very practical reasons. I mean, if you if you start in Rome and you decide you're going to go out to see the the frontiers of your empire, well, that's going to take you about two and a half months to three months to get there, and it's going to take you three months to get back. You've got a very limited communication system. And by the time you've got there, you've only got a few months of your office left. So what happens through the first century BC is that a whole series of kind of abortive attempts by individuals to say, look, we, we, you know, we have to have longer term, we have to have single rule, we have to have somebody, somebody's got to be in charge of this stuff. And they have some very, very short-lived experiments in that direction, mm. of which Julius Caesar is the most famous and the last. He gets assassinated mm. in 44 BC. But by that stage, pretty much everybody has accepted that the power-sharing democracy can't handle the big mm. territorial extent of the empire. And in the civil wars that follow the death of Julius Caesar, although Caesar was, was assassinated in the name of liberty, the mm. old republic, pretty quickly everybody realised that these combatants in the civil wars were fighting it out to see who was going to be one-man ruler. And you know, that's why I say the empire gave birth to the emperors rather than the emperors creating the empire. Right. It was the problem of ruling mm. that territory that pushed the Romans to a system of one-man rule. It just so happens that a, a kind of job description for Roman emperor survives, and it's found in a, a speech given by Pliny member of the Roman elite, of course. Tell us about the speech that he gives in front of the Senate, Senate, this speech of praise. Yeah, Yeah, we're at the very beginning of the second century CE. We're going to, you know, about almost 150 years now into one-man rule. And I think by this stage, one-man rule is absolutely taken for granted at Rome. Mm. And one of the features of the emperors is that essentially... They chose the senior offices in the state. So whereas, you know, back in the early first century CE, the consuls, the chief offices, were elected by the people. By now, the emperor chooses them. And partly in recognition of that, a custom grows up that the people who are chosen consul by the emperor 
they thank him. They thank him publicly in the Senate in front of all the other members of the political elite in Rome. And Pliny, a lot of whose letters actually still survive, who's a, a senior member of the Roman elite, a lawyer, a governor, an official in the state, his speech of thanks or speech of praise to the Emperor Trajan still survives. He circulated it because he was so damn proud of it, actually. <laughs> um, you know, and it, um, and he, I hope he added to it before he circulated it, because if he didn't, it would have taken well over three hours for him right. to read out. So we have to hope that what was actually delivered was a, a slightly brisker version. But it's a wonderful example of well, of some of the subtlety of flattery, because when you look at this speech thanking Trajan for honouring Pliny with the consulship, you think, to start with, this is absolutely revolting. You know, there's every, you know, he lards it on about how wonderful Trajan is and how, you know, he says things like, people now want to have babies because now they know that there is a decent ruler to, you know, who will rule the world when these babies actually uh, grow up. But the more you look at it, the more you see that as often with flattery of rulers. Pliny is both flattering, but he's also trying to direct the emperor (laughs) because he praises him for doing what Pliny wants him to do. So it's, you know, flattery is always a little bit more complicated than than just kind of toe-licking. And Sure, I'm see. looking at it here, Mary Beard. He must be generous. He should give that's pleasure right. in the yeah, form of that's shows. Right. Yeah, that's um, right. That, yes, you know, public monuments for the build he, them for the public he good. To, he has to build. He has to be generous. He has to give money to the people. He has to give shows to the people. Uh, and he and this is always the tricky one. He has to be a conqueror, and this becomes increasingly difficult. Uh, and it's why they. They have these kind of slight vanity projects where emperors like Trajan is very good at it, get a hell of a lot of kudos for not very much and erecting then a very large column in order to um, celebrate these rather trivial victories. But you see that, you know, he's saying you are so wonderfully polite to the aristocracy. You know, we love coming to your house because, you know, you are you are both generous, but you're not over lavish, etc., etc. So you start to see in this mm. a kind of job description of an emperor. And it goes right the way through the first two and a half centuries CE of you know, generosity building and a kind of sense of treating the Roman elite as if you were sort of equals with one another. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, dream on, they weren't. <laughs> right. right. Um, I, was dr- I was drawn to the part where Pliny says he must be transparent. And, and <laughs> it, because the idea of, and now whether he actually was transparent, but the idea of transparency at least is out there and accessibility was yeah, an important yeah. part of the job description, that is, right? That is something which I think is most surprising to us now, yeah, yeah. That, that 
part of the job of an emperor was to be there and accessible in theory, I don't know how much in practice, in theory to everybody. And there's a wonderful anecdote told about Trajan's successor, Hadrian, who's out in the country one day and an old woman comes up to him and says, excuse me, emperor, I've got a problem I'd like you to listen to. And Hadrian says, oh, I'm terribly sorry, I'm just much too busy. And she replies, well, if you're too busy for me, you're too busy to be emperor. Hmm. And that is an absolute bit of central Roman ideology, that the emperor is there partly to receive the begging letters, the complaints, Hmm. the problems of anybody wherever he goes. And that's one of the things that makes him extremely interesting and makes, makes a book on the Roman emperor not just about kind of the upper echelons of the Roman elite, because a lot of the problems that came to the emperor in one Mm -hmm. form or another were recorded and survived. So through the emperor's eyes, we see the sort of things that his subjects wanted him to put right, wanted him to solve. You know, the, the idea that the town might, you know, my local town is being bashed up by soldiers from the local army base. We can't bear to live here any longer because they're getting drunk and wrecking it every weekend. Sort of. mm. um, so you, you see the emperor as he is dealing with the real problems of the real people in the Roman mm. world, o- often the ones whose voices we think we never hear. But yeah. actually through the emperor we do. Mary Beard is a professor of classics at the University of Cambridge. Her latest book is Emperor of Rome, Ruling the Ancient Roman World. We'll take a break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. You describe the hold that an emperor has, the, the control that he seems to have as this puzzle. It's hard, like, hard to figure out how, how does it work exactly. And it seems as though being an emperor was rather like playing a part in a play. I mean you, you, you write that the role was kind of built on this sense of deception and, and, and fake, fakery and that for rank-and-file Romans, you say the rule of these men was less – Bloodstained, though, but it was strange and it was unsettling. What What do you make of the control that they they had? I think the big puzzle is how hmm. the Roman emperor, emperor ruled. Actually, how he got anything done. Yeah. He has very few staff compared with any later empire. There's very few men on the ground. There's a lot of soldiers, but there's not much administration, hmm. and. All the while, it's this very, very tortuous balancing act between getting your will done and appearing to be first amongst equals. And it works. I think often people think that it works by the bloodstained corridors of power. Mm. And, Mm. And I think that if we went back to ancient Rome, 
we'd certainly think that the corridors were pretty bloodstained in the imperial palace. But I think every corridor in Rome was pretty bloodstained, really, mm. by uh, our criteria. And, you know, what's going on is a, is a constant trade-off, which the emperor is always a bit vulnerable, honestly. And mm. it relies on a combination, I think, of microaggressions, which <laughs> is sort of positioning the emperor as top dog, but also it relies on the collaboration of the elite, whether it's the elite in the provinces or whether it's the elite in Rome. I mean, we we always like to think of ourselves, I think we look back at Roman history as if now we would be the kind of people who'd say, no, we're not, you know, we want to return to democracy. Um, uh, we're going to stick our heads above the parapet. We're going to tell the emperor he can't get away with this. Well, what's pretty clear is very, very few of them do that. They're all bound up with, in a way, keeping the show on the road and Mm. taking the honours the emperor gives. I suspect they grumble about it when they get back home at night. They say, oh, you know, know, I can't stand this much longer. But they do stand it. And I think, Mm. you know, it reminds me very much of the history of modern dictatorships, really, yeah. that you know, we, we like to think, if we look at the dictatorships of 20th century Europe, we like to think that you know, we would be the kind of people who would have stood up against it. Well, the evidence suggests that most people don't. Mm. Once it is the only system you've ever known, it becomes harder and harder to make a fuss, you know, you, you know, you go along, you go along with the status quo, and, and I think that when we look now a bit at you know, some of the fragilities of our democracy, I think we have to be a bit careful to, to well, we we should remember that that democracies only survive if people support them yeah. vociferously. Yeah, there's that part in the book where you you mention. Uh, uh, this is you know, there are fewer psychopaths in this story than, than than you might expect from the movies. But you also write that the survival of the empire, as a, you know, as a system, wouldn't make sense if it was ruled by this you know b- group of deranged people. So, are you saying that in some ways they were decent bureaucrats? Uh, you know, <laughs> e- even good at keeping budgets and hiring and firing people because you say they did a lot of paperwork, emperor. Yeah, they they did. And somebody up there in the Imperial Palace was a decent bureaucrat. Now, I think there's, there's, there's a, it must be true that if these guys are all crazed psychopaths, we can't explain how the Roman Empire and one man rule, the system of one man rule continues. And it would, yeah. it, it's impossible. Now, I think there's a danger of reversing that a bit too eagerly and saying, mm. so they're nice guys, really very hardworking, um, yeah. uh, tied to their to their letters and their filing cabinets. Though I think they're much more tied to their filing cabinets than we we like to imagine. I mean, there are far more workaholics there than there are people having sex in the swimming pool. Right. <laughs> and... Um, and the system, the system continues uh, despite, no doubt, the ups and downs of, well, in the case of Elagabalus, a teenage emperor. Mm. And 
That's partly because it's being worked by and the emperor is being supported by not just the elite who he is very keen to keep on side, but if you find, if you're looking for bureaucrats, it's in the slaves and the freed slaves in Mm. the imperial palace Mm. who actually provide the kind of continuity between reigns that, you know, in some ways, this is not an entirely good analogy, I think, but in some ways, like the British civil service does, that, you know, they, uh, the same guy who works as the director of finances under one emperor probably continues into the reign of the next. And they are in some ways very low status because they are often of servile origin, even if they have been made free citizens. Mm. But they have the grip, I think, on how you do things uh, and where the money is going, what you can afford. Now, some emperors, I think, would have made a lot of effort to learn that, Mm. but I don't think they have to necessarily. And, And I think that they're relying on experienced but largely slave administrative underclass. Now, I also think that, as I said, you know, a lot of a lot of them um, uh, work a lot harder than we give them credit for. And there are uh, there are anecdotes about them getting up, you know, very early in the morning to, you know, to you know, open the post bag. Or um, Julius Caesar and Marcus Aurelius, they both get into trouble because they do their letters when they go to the races at the Circus Maximus. And that is seen to be bringing the office to the races. And it seemed to be insulting to the Roman people whose pleasure this is. So they get kind of told off. They get told off a bit like, I mean, the closest thing for me is thinking about our own royal family. And if, if Prince William went to a football match and was caught doing his emails on his smartphone, it would not be a good look. Bad form, yeah. And it certainly wasn't a good look for these guys, but it suggests that they are, some of them are working quite hard and probably more of them than than not. I love the section where you explore where the Emperor of Rome ate and what they ate. I like this part where you say, you know, the the style of the imperial Roman banquet was more tapas than meat and two veg. I love that part. And we can talk about that. But you also write in the book about how it's at dinner where we see the Um, emperor in the most vivid detail, you say. And maybe tell that story of the emperor Domitian, where he orchestrates this black dinner. Yeah, I mean, this is where the movies get it right, really. Yeah, right. That you know, Roman banquets are where the Roman rulers were on display, right? mm. and it wasn't quite as as simple as the movies make it. But they they're broadly along the right lines. And it, but it's where power was visible, and there <laughs> is this wonderful story of the Emperor Domitian who uh, invites a whole load of uh, top guys to the palace for supper. And they're obviously quite kind of excited, as you would be, to get an invitation. But when they walk in, they see that it's a very weird supper indeed, that everything is painted black. The couches are painted black. 
even the slaves who are serving them are painted black. Mm. And next to each couch where they're going to recline, there is a silver plaque with their name on, but it's in the shape of a tombstone. (laughs) And uh, the emperor is playing up to the part and all he's talking about is death. And they lie there, you know, they can barely eat their food, you know, because they think this is not going to end well, is it? Um, so they're absolutely terrified. But at, at the end of the evening, the emperor says, oh, you know, last time, thanks very much, you know, off you go. And they breathe a sigh of relief and they go home. A few minutes after they've got home, there's a knock on the door. Mm-hmm. And they think, oh, this really is my last hour. You sent the hit squad. They open the door, but it's a surprise because outside there is no hit squad. What there is is a a little posse of palace porters bringing lavish gifts from the emperor. The the silver tombstone that had been next to each couch, the precious black vessels and so forth. And indeed the slave who had served them. Mm. And it's an interesting story, which I think we, we look at in a way differently f- from the ancient evidence for this. The ancient writer who tells us about this, Cassius Dio, who's writing in the third yeah. century, looking back, sees it as a, a, an example of how emperors can humiliate mm. and scare you witless without doing anything nasty. That that um, this is a kind of a, an exercise in black humour, but mm. also the aggression of fear, not the aggression of blood, the aggression of fear. Right. And it certainly is that. I think that when we read the story, uh, and I was reading it again only very recently, I am struck by that. I'm also appallingly struck by the role of the slaves in this. Because Cassius Dio makes it absolutely clear that the slave who had served each person at dinner was given to them as a present at the Mm. end of the evening. And you think Mm. there is no more horrible example, I think, of the the sheer commodification. This isn't the violence, but Mm. just the commodification of the human being here, that they just get given away. It's it's a sort of as if at the end of the evening you get a party bag and the slave, this human being, is in the party bag. And a friend of mine I was telling this to, she didn't know anything about it. And she said, well, now, if you went to dinner and somebody said at the end of the evening, would you like to take the cat home? Or would you like a kitten? (laughs) You'd be horrified. Yeah. And here they're giving away human beings. Mm. There's a section in the book where you write about where the emperor lived, the, the buildings they, they <laughs> built. And, and maybe here you could say something about I, – I do want to get to like did they have a bedroom? Like was oh. there a lobby? <laughs> yeah. But before there, maybe say something about Nero's golden house. It's yeah. – Extravagant, maybe less extravagant than the Roman writers yeah. seemed. But what, what does this story tell us? Well, um, the basic problem is that once you've got a Roman one-man ruler, you have to think, well, where are we going to? Where's he going to live? Yeah. And to start with, Julius Caesar didn't live anywhere special. It looks like Augustus 
from the end of the first century is it's got a bit of a kind of gated compound really mm. on the Palatine mm. Hill in the centre of Rome but but they're a kind of linked set of houses but nothing which is palatial as we would think of it. Mm. Now the first the first Roman emperor to have a real palace is Nero yeah. and he has it because a large swathe of Rome burnt down in the 60s CE because of a great fire. Mm. And uh, in the the bits that, that were destroyed, Nero built a huge palace with state-of-the-art revolving dining rooms, lakes, you know, ornamental gardens, you know, you name it. And it was sometimes said, alleged, probably wrongly, that Nero had started the fire of Rome in order to get some free real estate on which to build uh, a, a big new palace. But his new palace doesn't really last very long. It's very grand. He probably doesn't finish it. It's got this huge colossal statue of himself in the, in the vestibule. But it kind of has got a, a sort of bad taste with it because people say we, we know that there was graffiti in Rome on the walls saying one person you know one man has taken over the whole city flee citizens you know there's no room for you here any longer it's Nero's house and so after the reign of Nero this quickly goes into abeyance it's used a bit but it, it doesn't it doesn't survive as the Palace of Rome. Instead, on the Palatine Hill, one of the seven hills where Augustus had lived, um, the next dynasty after Nero, which is the Emperor Vespasian and his successors, including Domitian, they build a what becomes a huge palace which takes over the whole of the hill in Rome. It's not quite as big as Nero's palace, but it very nearly is. It's also a bit of a rabbit warren, and it's a bit of a mess, and it's full of the most weird things. I mean, one emperor, for example, is supposed to have had thousands of doves in his aviaries on the Palatine Hill. You know, so you've got to put the animals back in here. And you've also got to put all the kind of curiosities. The emperors are huge collectors of things, which they then display in their palaces. And they get given all kinds of stuff from the, from the extremities of empire. So it's a sort of vast cabinet of curiosities. With, I mean, Augustus, obviously, you know, originally, and it continues even, you know, after his very small palace, he has things like fossils on show. One emperor collects what is supposed to be a mythical beast, a half man, half horse called a centaur. Right? Mm. I think it's an Aladdin's cave, granny's attic kind of mm. palace rather than just a grand Versailles. That's the historian Mary Beard. Her new book is Emperor of Rome, Ruling the Ancient Roman World. We'll take another break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. What did the Emperor of Rome look like? I mean, you write about their appearance. You mentioned how their appearance was 
well-known and well-recorded. Um, but, you know, the images on coins or statues, were they really what they looked like? <laughs> <laughs> or was this more well, stylized? I mean, you write about the, the wrinkles that appear in certain eras and the facial hair on some and then later no. And the hairstyles of the women yeah. in, in yeah. the statues. Of the, say something about this. Well, they look now very stylized. They're not yeah. always in the same style. They're absolutely right. There's, there's occasions when they appear more wrinkly. It's a pretty good rule if you go to a, a museum which has got Roman statues of emperors in, if they've got a beard, they're from the second century CE. You, know, yeah. so you, could, you could always impress people by saying, hmm, second century, <laughs> um, because that style takes over. I think what's interesting about them is it is they are the first example, these portraits of emperors, are the first example of what we might call mass propaganda, that mm. what Julius Caesar appears to start, but he doesn't honestly live long enough to, to follow through. But what Augustus does is part of being an emperor was to get your face everywhere. Yeah? Mm. And you did that by coins. It was... Julius Caesar was the first living person in the Roman world and pretty early for the Greek world too, the first Roman to have his living face on a coin. It was absolute revolution. Up to then, there'd been faces, but they'd all been faces of dead people or faces mm. of mythical people. So you know, Julius Caesar, Augustus and all the rest, they get on the coins and they get into the pockets of their subjects. You can't sort of avoid them. And they also seem to to distribute across the emperor empire, as nobody has ever done before, ever, um, standardised images of themselves. Yeah. One guess is that there was 50,000 marble or bronze statues of wow. Augustus in the Roman world. You, you, and, you, even, you have this great figure in the book that I loved where they even laid out the locks of hair in yeah. very precise yeah. ways. Yeah. What, one of the reasons that we can be pretty certain that they must go back to the same model, whether it was marble or perhaps wax or wood, is that if you look at how the, the locks of Augustus's hair fall, you find them falling identically in statues that are found 2,000 miles apart. And it's, it's almost certain that we have no idea what the process is. But the only way of explaining that, I think, is that there was a template image mm. that people followed. Um, and so they sort of thought that's the emperor. Now, they, if they met the emperor, I think they probably would have been a bit surprised. Yeah. Um, and no doubt there was a kind of slight trade-off between an idealising image of him and what he really looked like. But when we have the descriptions of what emperors look like, given by Roman writers, they're not like what they look like in their statues. Mm. You know, Augustus in his statues does not have gappy teeth which is one of his characteristics, according to his biographer. Things like that. Uh, spotty backs and gappy teeth and sallow <laughs> cheeks. <laughs> um, you know, they're just ordinary. <laughs> but the statues are anything but ordinary. And they change slightly. Hmm. 
but they sometimes they trade in both similarity and difference. And I think that, you know, one basic rule is if you owe your position to your predecessor because you're his son or he adopted you, there is a very, very strong incentive to make yourself look look like him. You know, to say there is a tradition here uh, that I follow this man and I look like him. If you come to power after an assassination, there is a very strong incentive to make yourself look completely different. And uh, after the assassination, or actually he was forced to suicide, of the Emperor Nero, uh, there's a short period of civil war. But after that, Vespasian establishes a new dynasty and he looks as different from Nero as you could possibly imagine. And that's that's intentional. He might not really have looked like that. But he's saying, not Nero, is what he's saying. So let's talk about um, how this all comes to an end. It doesn't just abruptly end. I mean, you mentioned, as far as you're concerned, you sort of ended at 235 CE. Yeah. I yeah. mean, for the next, you know, what, 50 years or something like that, you would have rulers that would come and go. But you sort of pinpoint it there with the death of of Alexander, where you say the job description begins to change. So how yeah. does this all end? Well, in some ways, it doesn't end for a very long time, actually. Huh. Certainly huh. not in the East. It does. Yeah. It's quicker in the West. I mean, in the East, the Roman Empire keeps going to the fall of Constantinople in the middle of the 15th century. I mean, the empire does look different, that's for sure. But they thought of themselves as Romans. Huh. And in many ways, they were. In the West and the empire does split into two halves. Vast territory becomes more manageable. I think you get a break in 235. Now, obviously, you know, uh, historians are very good at inventing where to take their breaks. And <laughs> I, I chose 235 because, as you say, what happens then is for about 50 years, you get emperors who rule for only a couple of years, who maybe never come to Rome, always are on the, um, on the frontiers, or, and also are not part of the mm. Roman elite, that they've mm. risen up through the ranks of the army and so forth. There is a no doubt untrue story told about the successor of Alexander Severus, who dies in 235. His successor was a guy called Maximinus the Thracian, and people said he was the first Roman emperor who couldn't read and write. Now, as I say, that might not be true. Actually, it might be a, a you know a really convenient slur. But for me, it, it marks the change to a different sort of em, of em, emperor. So that, I mean, you know, what, you know, one of the things I say, and I, I I think it's true, is that you know if you'd gone to sleep. 1 BC, and you had woken up in 211 CE, 200 years later, you would have sort of recognised, you know, it's the same world. You, mm. You'd have, the same people doing the, roughly the same things. You'd have, you'd have been at home. If you had woken up in 261, mm. you'd have thought, where am I? Because the world has changed. 
the role of the elite is changing. There's much more stress on individual army leaders, often who've come up from from the ranks, not from the aristocracy. I mean, you might say this is a democratisation, but they don't tend to last very long. Mm. And so I, I, I chose that point as a, as a, a major turning point. Now, you know, to be honest, it's a bit of a blurry boundary. And I talk about people who ruled after then. Mm-hmm. And by the time you come to the end of the third century CE and the beginning of the fourth, you have another major change, which would have been a, another kind of point to use as an end point, when with Constantine, you get in some ways, a kind of re-establishment of the sort of stability you'd had up to 235. But it's this time backed up by a different god. It's It has become Christian. Right. And so that would be a... You know, you, uh, turning points have to work for you, and I chose 235, but Constantine was another major turning point when it's not that it's not that... Christianity is the thorn in the flesh of the Roman Empire, uh, emperor at that point. It is that Christianity is backing the Roman emperor. Right. You mentioned in the book that working on the Roman Empire for so long, you, that you, you came to really de- detest autocracy as this political system, it led you to be more sympathetic to those who were caught up in it. But you also make clear that Romans cannot... And will not, as you say, give us direct lessons or no. direct answers for our own problems. I, I sometimes hear in, in, in Q&As with you about this book, people in the audience asking that question. All right, what are the yeah. lessons we can draw from yeah, it? No, and you, yeah. you're, you're very grace, you gracefully demure from that because you believe they don't have direct answers, but, no. but they can help us, what, see the world, I think you say in the book, yeah. differently, right? Yeah, yes, I don't, you know, I don't think that there's a direct answer. And people are always wanting that. They're always wanting individual Roman emperors to be somehow like particular modern leaders. And when President Trump was in office, that was the question I was always getting asked. Which Roman emperor (laughs) is President Trump like? Well, actually, none really is the real answer to that. I occasionally said Elagabalus. (laughs) Not because I thought he was like Elagabalus, but I thought, let me give you an emperor you won't have heard of. And then um, you'll have to go and look him up. But I, I think that uh, what it, it, Rome helps you see your own world through different lens, I think. And it also does help you wonder in a, wonder in a different way about your own political system. And for, for me, the, the, the most emphatic was you know, the sense that the empire wasn't really upheld by violence. Okay, you might say, look, it's a military dictatorship. The emperor controls the army, and that's certainly true. But it was more upheld and underpinned by people being prepared to cooperate with with a system of one-man rule. And I think, you know, there is a big lesson for us in that, you know, that we have to remember that we're all liable to be collaborators if we don't watch out. So that's certainly what people like Pliny 
and the others were, you know, decent men, mm. decent men and women like us, you know, with with high principles, clever, and yet in the end, collaborating uh, in the interests of, I suppose, a quiet life. I, I, mean, I think I also came to think that although I kind of thought autocracy was quite dreadful and, and the more I looked at it, the more dreadful I thought it was kind of in terms of, oh, performance and it's mm. fakery and it's pretending to do what it couldn't do. You know, I did think in the end it isn't just, you know, the rest of the Roman world who are caught up in that system. The Roman emperor was too and he couldn't escape mm. and... He couldn't really control things. And he, in some ways, was a fragile victim of it, a bit like the rest of the people were. You know, and many of them were killed, and many of them were killed in the end because, you know, the system of succession was very uncertain and there was no way for an emperor to resign apart from to resign dead. It's a poison chalice, being a Roman emperor. Mary Beard, thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you very much. It was great to talk. Mary Beard, she's a professor of classics at the University of Cambridge. Her latest book is Emperor of Rome, Ruling the Ancient Roman World. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas or comments or feedback, you can email us at radiowest at kuer.org. The program is produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Kerry Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio. 